take your Bible, please, and meet me in Acts chapter 19. Acts 19. interesting. I, I, I look around and sometimes, I, I like this, sometimes people will sit in different spots. <laughs> and so i like, wait, wait, I'm not used to seeing you there. And then, but that's good. I like that. Like, I would encourage even more of that. We come to Acts 19 today. And my plan this morning is to take the whole chapter in one fell swoop. Uh, because, as we will see, each scene uh, gives, to, gives way to the next seamlessly, and I just want us to see and hear uh, the whole story without interruption. Acts 19 is about the Apostle Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus, including his arrival into the city and how his work in that place over a three-year period transformed. It's the longest he stayed in any one city that we're aware of on, uh, on any of his journeys. And so how his three-year period uh, or his, his ministry there in Ephesus over a three-year period transformed the people of Ephesus and really the entire region of Asia in amazing ways. It is, it is not an overstatement to say that true revival took place in that place Uh, So that those who resisted and even those who rioted could not prevent the gospel from taking more ground. I think one of the uh, great lessons here is that we can persist in the work of the Lord because the word of the Lord prevails. Uh, We can persist in the work of the Lord because the word of the Lord prevails. There's a lot to cover, obviously. So let's just get started and, and begin by reading this together. Acts 19 Uh, chapter uh, verse 1 through 41 and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus and there he found some disciples and he said to them did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed and they said no we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit and he said into what then were you baptized they said into John's baptism and Paul said John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly reasoning and persuading uh, them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus 
whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all in the name of the Lord was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a great number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and, and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. And now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not even know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought, be, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have uh, brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, It shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, 
since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Let's pray. God, we want to thank you again for our time this morning in the scripture. And even as we've sung in some of the songs already this morning, uh, we believe that, that these are words of truth. They are your words. They are words that, that, uh, that give voice to your thoughts and ultimately that reveal your heart, your person, your character. And so I pray that today you would help us to receive these words with, uh, with open and ready hearts, make us good listeners, uh, help us to be not defensive or protective over those, even those deeper recesses of the heart, but rather that we would um, just come before you in full transparency and openness, uh, asking and trusting that your word would have its work in our lives. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and King. Amen. So, this is now Paul's third missionary journey, as recorded in Acts. He's arrived in the city of Ephesus, having come into the city, we're told, after Apollos had left for Corinth. You remember that Paul had been in Corinth too, not long before this, and then quickly passed before or, or passed through uh, Ephesus before visiting the churches in Jerusalem and Antioch and Galatia and Phrygia. This is some of what we learned in previous chapters. And after at that time, after he left Ephesus, Apollos arrived. Apollos was teaching about Jesus, at least at least what he knew of Jesus before he sailed away to Corinth. And in all of this, we have this couple, this husband-wife, Priscilla and Aquila, who had partnered with Paul, both in Corinth and in Ephesus. And while while in Ephesus, they helped explain the full gospel, the fullness of the gospel to Apollos. Uh, I believe they they were instrumental in leading Apollos to saving faith in Christ uh, before sending Apollos uh, to Corinth with their blessing. And what I want us to see in all of this, maybe even what Luke is trying to get us to see with just this opening statement in chapter 19, I just want us to see how God was so clearly moving behind the scenes. There's really uh, evidence here of the hand of providence doing his work. In this case, by moving people from place to place and region to region in order to further the cause of Christ exponentially. You may also recall that that God, when Paul was on his second missionary journey, near the beginning of that journey, uh, he intended to go into Asia, and God prevented him from doing so. And yet now, God opens the door wide for Paul to spend extended time in that region, in Ephesus. And what this is, is just another reminder that sometimes God's no is simply a not yet. It was no for Paul then because God had plans for Paul in Ephesus now. 
the whole scene reveals how God is working behind the scenes. And as Paul came into Ephesus, he met some men who were disciples of John the Baptist. We talked a little bit about this last week with Apollos. We'll go a little bit quicker today. If you want more information, you can maybe listen to last week's message. But these men were disciples of John the Baptist, men like Apollos before he came to Christ, men who believed in Jesus to a point, but who didn't yet know or understand the full gospel. Paul asks if they they received uh, the Holy Spirit when they believed, and they say no, and they even admit we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Well, into what then were you baptized, Paul asks, and they say into John's baptism. And then Paul says, and this is the key statement, Paul says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was coming after him. Uh, That is Jesus. In other words, repentance alone is not enough. True and saving faith is repentance and faith. Repentance, because it involves the confession of sin and the return to God, faith in Jesus, because only Jesus can truly cleanse a person from sin and restore a person to God. So when Paul explained this to these disciples in Acts 19, they realized, much like Apollos in the previous chapter, that although they repented and believed in Jesus to a point, they hadn't yet heard the full gospel and thus hadn't put their whole faith in Christ. But now they did. And once they were baptized in the name of Christ, they received the Holy Spirit, I think what we want to see here is before this, these men were disciples of John. But now they had become disciples of Jesus. And then we're told that Paul, after this, Paul found the local synagogue. That was his custom. And he began reasoning with the Jews and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Uh, I, I really love this idea of reasoned with them. In other words, he dialogued with them. He talked with them. There was back and forth. This wasn't a let me preach at you. That was, this was more of a let's reason together. He was sharing the message of Jesus and appealing for response. He spoke boldly, it says, and persuasively Uh, He was trying to move them toward belief in Christ, but not in an obnoxious way. Rather, just with passion and persuasion. But when it became apparent that some people just weren't going to believe, they weren't. And in fact, they were maligning the message instead. Paul just left them and began reasoning elsewhere, in this case, in the hall of Tyrannus. Now, as I'm sure you've experienced, some people, like, like these people, they just aren't open to reason, are they? 
No matter how willing you are to discuss with them or dialogue with them, they just aren't open to reason. Some people are just stubborn. They're hard-hearted. They're bull-headed. I think this might be why idioms like set in one's ways or dig in your heels or uh, you can't teach old dogs new tricks. Maybe that's why these idioms exist. Certain people are just so determined to be right uh, that rather than seeing or hearing things as they are, they actually choose the wrong instead. And as we have seen repeatedly from Paul's example, and once again here in Ephesus, once he saw that people were closed to reason, he simply moved on and found other people who were more willing to dialogue. And I think it's worth asking at this point if, if, we, if, if you are, we are, at all like the people in that synagogue. Are we so determined to be right in whatever it is? Are you so determined to be right in whatever it is that you believe that you're willing to be wrong just to be right? Does that make sense? Like if you've ever been, I'm, I mean, this is a moment of confession right here. If you've ever been in, um, let's just say, a, a disagreement with your spouse. Well, there comes a time, at least in some of my disagreements, where I realize I'm in the wrong, but I want to be right. And so I'm willing to be right. I'm fighting to be right, even if it means being wrong. Maybe you can relate. Either Jesus is Lord or he isn't. But those are the only options. So either you are surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, or you aren't. And if you aren't, then no matter how right you think you are, you are dead wrong. The Bible cautions that we do not harden our hearts. When we harden our heart toward God as He so graciously reveals himself to us and his truth to us, we effectively seal our own fate, just like the people in that synagogue who chose unbelief over belief. So seeing the hard-heartedness of the people, Paul moved on. And in this case, he moved to the hall of Tyrannus. Now, no one is really quite sure who Tyrannus was. Though some scholars do suggest that, that he may have been a Greek expert in rhetoric, uh, in whose school or hall 
in whose school Paul taught daily for the next two years. Whatever the case, what we do know, according to verse 10, is that in two years' time, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now let that sink in. I think this, what this means is that people were coming from all over to hear Paul as he shared Christ. And as they heard the message of Jesus and responded to it, they took it with them and shared it with others. So whether coming or going, the gospel was heard and proclaimed and it spread rapidly. In the face of opposition, the word of the Lord prevailed through the witness of his people. During this time, some amazing things were happening. Things that demonstrated the sheer power of the gospel to change lives. And we're told in verse 11 that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Extraordinary miracles. As opposed, I guess, to your run-of-the-mill, average miracles. (laughs) I mean, Paul experienced truly unique anointing during this season. His teaching and preaching ministry was bearing fruit left and right, and he was divinely empowered in such a way that he could heal the sick and free the demon-possessed, even his handkerchiefs and his his aprons, those that touched his, his skin, even those were passed on and used to heal people both physically and, and spiritually. And I assume these were the handkerchiefs and aprons he used in his tent-making business. So in all likelihood, we're talking about, the. I mean, these were probably sweaty. They're probably dirty. They're probably very grimy. And yet there was such a unique anointing upon Paul at this time that, that even his sweat rags and his grimy garments were used by God in extraordinarily miraculous ways. The word of the Lord went forth in power and it prevailed both in word and in deed. And so what happens? Well, as is often the case when God does amazing things, some people who have no real interest in God, saw this as an opportunity for personal gain. Luke mentions some itinerant Jewish exorcists. Now, I didn't even know that was a thing, like to be an itinerant exorcist. But, but Luke mentions some, and here they are, and they come into town, and they begin to see all that God has been doing through Paul, and they begin to hear Uh, how the whole city of Ephesus is in full revival, and they think, how can we get in on this action? They don't know Jesus. They don't know Paul. But that doesn't stop them. So they're just walking up to people, it seems, who were demonically oppressed, apparently, and they say, I just adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul is proclaiming. But seven of these itinerant exorcists 
got far more than they bargained for. Seven brothers who were the sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva. And it just seems like they ran into the wrong demon that day. For when they tried this on that demon, uh, the demon said, Oh, I know all about Jesus. And I've heard about Paul. But you, who do you think you are? And with that, the man in whom the demon, in whom was the demon, overpowered all seven of these brothers and beat them so severely that they ran off, not only wounded, but naked, just utterly defeated and humiliated. And I'm not necessarily proud of this church, but I have to admit to you that as I thought about this this week, I wish more of this would happen today. Like I wish the so-called miracle workers and healers and exorcists in our day who really have no interest in God, no true interest in following God's commandments, but they prey upon the vulnerable and the desperate by invoking the name of Jesus under false pretense. I wish, like the evil spirit in this scene, some spirit, sorry to admit this to you, I, I do, I wish some spirit would, would just beat the snot out of these false leaders and religious hucksters, these trolls that are making their rounds today. Maybe if more of these health and wealth and name it and complain, uh, name it, name it and claim it. Pretenders were seen fleeing their churches naked and wounded. Maybe they'd have fewer people to prey upon. No amens for that one. It really is sad when you hear some of the stories of the people who put such trust and are told that the reason they don't experience the healing or get the this or get the that that they need or want is because they just don't have enough faith. But if you give me more money, I'll pray for God to give you more faith. And I'll pray for you to muster the faith. Just keep those checks coming in. So yeah, sometimes I want them to get beaten down. But then again, who am I, really? Who are we? To question God's great patience and God's great mercy and to question why some get away with this kind of behavior 
and others like the sons of Siva don't. So we must fall back to this place of just trust, this absolute trust in God, because God is so in control that is, even as in this instance, even the demonic enemies of God become unwitting players in the advancement of the gospel. You see that? Like, don't, I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to miss what becomes of this scene. I want this fact to encourage you because in those instances in your life in which it seems like the enemy has the upper hand, you can find encouragement in knowing that demons and even Satan himself cannot thwart the purposes of God. And in fact, they often become like pawns in the advancement of God's perfect plan. As is revealed, for example, in the lives of Job, and even more importantly, in the life of Jesus. So look at what becomes of this episode, verses 17 and 18. And this became known, like this, 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 this encounter between this demon and these seven brothers, this became known to all the residents of Asia, uh, of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. So news of this spread quickly, and when the people heard what happened, they became afraid. Who can blame them, really? The entire city was being rocked by divine power. The word of the Lord, that is the message of Christ, was being proclaimed faithfully, and and God was just demonstrating its life-changing power in, in miraculous ways. And no wonder the the people of Ephesus grew fearful because something truly extraordinary was taking place in their city to the praise of the name of Jesus. The Ephesians began to realize that there is power in that name. That you cannot just throw that name around lightly. Because the name represents the person behind the name. The sons of Siva took the name of Jesus in vain and they paid the price. So the people of Ephesus began to praise the name of Jesus. Even the believers, notice, even the believers were so convicted that they began openly confessing their sins and divulging the things they had been keeping secret. These were relatively new believers, remember, just recent converts to Christ, young in the Lord, it's just such a great example here. Please see this. Such a great example. You had another example of just how great is the grace of God. Here we have people who have already come to faith in Jesus, and yet they still carried all sorts of sin and worldly baggage with them. 
So it's another example of how God doesn't require that we get our act together before coming to Christ. Uh, but once we come to Christ by faith and entrust our lives to His care, then God, by His Spirit, begins to clean up our lives from the inside out. Listen, sanctification isn't required to becoming a Christian. It's the result of becoming a Christian. Think about your own life. Aren't you thankful that God didn't wait for you to put yourself together? Instead, he came to you in your sinful state and in that state of brokenness where sin had left you. And he restored you and repaired you and made something new out of you. One of the hallmarks of the gospel is that God takes you in your brokenness and he puts you back together. Sometimes people say, I'm not good enough to come to Christ, to be a Christian. If you only knew my past, if you only knew what I've done, And in a sense, you're right. You you don't deserve such kindness. None of us do. On the other hand, though, the gospel declares that it's because you're incapable of repairing yourself, because you're not good enough in that way, because of this, God has come to rebuild something out of the rubble of your life. And so the young believers, after hearing what happened to the sons of Siva, were so deeply affected by the news and so overcome by praise for Jesus, they begin to rid themselves. I I love this. They begin to rid themselves of those things that just aren't befitting of a follower of Christ. The stuff they did in secret, they now brought out into the open as people confessed and divulged what had really been going on in their lives. No more pretense, no more masks transparent before God and one another, they were finally free from the burden of trying to manage sin or hide it from others. Loved ones, is there something in your life today that you're holding on to in secret that God would want you to let go, to let go of.
some sinful behavior. Maybe it's something else that's holding you back, something shackling you, something pulling you away from Jesus when Jesus would have you be free. Though it's hard, I've come to a place in life where I I genuinely praise and thank God for the conviction of sin because it leads me to the confession of sin. And there is such freedom and renewal in the confession of sin before God. The Bible says if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God is saying that that's something that you're, that you may be hiding or trying to hide or trying to manage, trying to keep from others, trying to keep from God, whatever that something is. God is saying, Bring it to me in confession and repentance and watch what I can do in your life. May God help us to let go of that which we try so hard to hide or manage. Unfortunately, Not everyone was pleased with the change taking place around Ephesus at that time because the message of Jesus, it does, it it confronts our idolatrous hearts, which is basically the second half of this chapter. So we have this man, Demetrius, he's a silversmith and and he's gathered some of the craftsmen around town whose businesses depended on the buying and selling of idols. This was a real thing. This was his livelihood. But Paul is now going around saying that that gods made by human hands, duh, they're not gods. And there's this revival taking place. And so these men are losing business and therefore they're losing money. As more and more people were coming to faith in Christ, fewer and fewer were worshiping false gods, which meant fewer customers to purchase their idols. You know, that's the way it's supposed to be. That when a person comes to Christ, 
That's that's what it's supposed to be when a person comes to Christ, because the more a person worships Jesus, the less he or she worships the small g gods. You know, we're created with a need to worship. And we will worship something, all of us, every one of us. We will worship something. Either the creator or created things. And those, three, those created things, whatever they are, they become like idols to us. And it may not just be a little statue or, or something of that nature. It's, it's, it can be a, 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 a whole host of things. The, it, it may be the idol of wealth, as it was for Demetrius and the other businessmen. Hey, I don't really care about this idol, but I care about the fact that it makes me money. And I care about money. It may be the idol of power and prominence, which maybe is what we see in the sons of Siva who wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to to really put themselves on the map by trying to do what God was doing through the Apostle Paul. It may be the idol of sex or sexuality as those who worshipped at the temple of Artemis. And, you know, Artemis was just thought to be the goddess of fertility, which meant the temple of Artemis was basically a sex temple where the priests and priestesses of Artemis engaged in all sorts of sexual perversity all in the name of worship. So even religion can be an idol. Even as it was with the Jews in the synagogue earlier in the chapter who preferred their version of God rather than God as He truly is. But when a person comes to faith in Christ, worship takes on a whole new meaning because the person begins to love God above all and his love for God grows and idolatry ceases. Life itself moves from grayscale into full-blown technicolor. It's, it's, it's the difference between the old black and white tube TVs and the new... 4K, ultra-high-def, OLED displays. It's night and day. But Demetrius was the guy who specialized in the old black and white TVs. So he gathers a crowd and he helps incite a riot because as crazy as it is, Some people actually prefer their little idol over the Lord of the entire universe. They love their their idols more. Unless we think we're any different, Just ask yourself if there's anything in your life today that you value more than Jesus. 
And because, I think you'll agree with me here, because we typically, our strong suit, we're, not, we're, not, we're typically not very good at honest self-reflection. So maybe it would be imagining what the people closest to you would say. What would they say is your highest love as they observe your life and your priorities? Basically, who is on the throne of your life? I remember hearing this for the first time from Campus Crusade for Christ. This is how they put it. I still see the, uh, you guys know what I'm talking about, the little image of the, the, the throne. Like there was this little drawing, very simple, this little drawing of a throne, and then all the stuff of life that was just random about. And, and the choice is pretty simple. It's either Jesus is on the throne of your heart, and everything else bows to him, or in your mind, something else is on the throne and Jesus is bowing to it. And anytime something else assumes the throne, idolatry has taken root. And it's not until you invite the lordship of Christ into your life that those idols are properly deposed. For two hours, some in Ephesus, two hours, that's a long time. For two hours, these people worked themselves up and started shouting. Two hours of great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great. Are you tired yet? Preferring their little idol over the Lord. Not until the town clerk convinced them to calm down, then they finally calmed down. But when push came to shove, Demetrius and the others chose mere trinkets when priceless treasure was made available to them. The treasure that is Christ. And of living and walking with God by His Spirit in a relationship of love. As I said at the start, we can persist in the work of the Lord because the word of the Lord prevails. Do you believe that? And from this passage, how does the word of the Lord prevail? Well, it prevails through the witness of his people as we see in verses 1 through 10. It prevails through the demonstration of its life-changing power as seen in verses 11 through 20. And it prevails by confronting our idolatrous hearts as evidenced in verses 21 through 41. 
May the, Lord, may the word of the Lord prevail in us today. May the word of the Lord prevail in you today. Even from this text this morning. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we just want to sit in your presence for a moment. And allow, allow the Holy Spirit to bring any necessary conviction to our hearts and any encouragement of love as well. We thank you for prevailing in our lives, that the gospel has come to us It has softened our calloused hearts. It has broken down the walls we construct. It has taken root and is beginning to, continues to change us from the inside out so that we may be more and more fully devoted followers of Christ. Do that work in us, we pray. And may the word of the Lord prevail in us again today. And may we be those who take that word out and share it with others that it may prevail in them as well. For your name's sake.